Jocelyn Goldfine is a true IT visionary. Having worked at VMware and Facebook in the early days of both, and now as managing director at Zeta Venture Partners, Jocelyn has been involved in the formative years of the internet and technological innovations. Jocelyn and Ian discuss everything from the rise of the computer sciences industry to how to look at investing in startups, and they discuss the role artificial intelligence will play in businesses moving forward, how the rise of cloud technology could be a precursor to the rise of AI, and so much more. Plus, Jocelyn dives into her years of experience at Facebook working closely with Mark Zuckerberg, as well as what it was like riding the VMware rocket ship right as it caught fire. This podcast is sponsored by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. Salesforce just introduced the Lightning Platform Mobile, the low-code mobile app development platform that empowers anyone to easily build, publish, and manage AI-powered mobile apps for employees and for customers. Find out more at salesforce.com slash buildmobileapps. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And this is part two with Jocelyn. Let's get into AI as an industry. What are we seeing? What are you seeing from the ground? Is this an industry? Is this a is this something larger than an industry? Is it a vertical? Is every company going to be an AI company? Like what what's the future of this? I um yeah, I think I would I would uh, fight the hypothesis. I don't think AI is an industry. I think it's a technology and I think it's a platform. But yeah, I expect to see it in every industry. And I think rate of adoptions will will differ, but I see AI being a part of the finance sector, the education sector, the healthcare sector, the climate, the nonprofit, I mean, name a sector. And I think with the adoption of AI, just like with the adoption of technology period, they'll be able to be more efficient, more effective, more successful. So let's talk about some of the companies that you're investing in right now and some of the things that they're working on. Because I think, you know, for a lot of uh, technology executives Mm. who don't necessarily, who you haven't flown out yet for your uh, CIO demo days, are curious what are companies working on? What are the um, what are the things that you know is being funded by the best and brightest here in Silicon Valley? Well, um, you know, I guess I'll I'll sort of be be true to my vision that that AI touches everything, and and I feel like our the the companies we get to work with kind of are are evidence of that. We work with a great company called Lilt, which is using AI to help uh, human language translators become more efficient and productive. So oh, great. I, so, we need that. I'm so in. Yeah. Right. So if you want to translate your website into, you know, another language, it's pretty expensive. So if you're a startup and you're thinking, how many languages am I going to support? Maybe you think, well, I'll just do three because I can't afford to do every language. But if we can make the cost of language translation 10 times cheaper because a machine is taking the first pass and the human being is just making corrections then all of a sudden you democratize access to translation. And I think you kind of flatten the world a little bit more. You make it easier for humans to communicate when going back and forth between each other's languages is not such a barrier to communication. We work with a great company that is looking at IoT security. So we have, you know, millions of devices sitting on our networks. Well, maybe we have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, but collectively across all our corporate networks, we have millions of devices. We have different kinds of devices 
most CIOs and CISOs can't even inventory all the devices that are sitting on their network now. It's not like it used to be where it was, well, I have the machines in my data center that I purchased and I have a desktop for each employee and I know those and I can inventory those. It's an asset management job. But now it's sort of like everything from the thermostat to the security camera to the phones walking on and off your network. You know, we talk about the perimeter list network, but how do we even find all the devices? How do we identify what they are? And then how do we know what the vulnerabilities are in those devices? Because the device manufacturers sure are not disclosing them. Yeah, and, B, and it's all BYOD anyways, right? Exactly. Like everybody's bringing whatever device they have, and that changes on a daily basis. And then, you know, when you when those devices uh, need to get online, mm -hmm. um, then the next step of that is, well, how long does that take? How much productivity are we losing just because Ian got a new laptop? Totally, totally. And so how can you have this resilient intelligence layer that tells you when something new is on your network and that tells you what the risk level is and that tells you, hey, this is something I need to be proactive about and maybe and, and maybe this is something I can be reactive towards and prioritize lower. Because I think what every CISO would tell you, what every chief information security officer will tell you is that they don't have enough people in their SecOps team to respond to every possible threat. And so how do we really intelligently prioritize and prune away all those false positives and select the handful of risks that are the true threats. And so that's an area where AI, again, can sort of augment that human productivity, you know, take the, you know, take the 10 SecOps engineers that I have and give them the power of, of a thousand that I need. Yeah. And that's kind of one of those, I mean, that sounds like a cybersecurity company that is leveraging AI, not an AI company that's leveraging cybersecurity. Cyber is that like, you know, and this is kind of like gets at the original question is like, is what is, AI is AI the thing that's just in everything? Is it technology? Is it, you know, the internet? Is it just a thing that is a fundamental um, thing that we're all going to be using in everything? Yeah, exactly. I think for a while there in the 90s and early 2000s, we talked about internet as a vertical, right? Yeah. And doesn't that sound pretty antiquated now? Yeah. Like, who are the internet companies? Is Amazon an internet company? They're, they're a retailer, right? They are the retailer. And they're also now a cloud infrastructure company, yeah. right? Like, yeah. internet is a is an enabling technology. It's not in and itself, and and you know, same with eBay, same you know, Google, you know, I don't think like internet doesn't describe those the businesses those companies are in, and so nor do I think AI describes the businesses that that these companies are in. And I'm not, you know, I'm also not too big a fan of companies that are just selling sort of AI frameworks or AI libraries and technologies. That might be what you could describe as sort of a pure play AI company, and. Um, you know, I'm not a, I think there are some really great um, companies like that. We've invested in a company called Domino Data Labs, which I think is absolutely the preeminent, you know, it's the GitHub for data scientists. It's the set of tools and it's, 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 it's where data scientists can manage their models. Um, so I think that kind of, you know, picks and shovels company can exist. We were very fortunate to get to work with a company called Kaggle before they were acquired yeah. by Google, which is absolutely the best community on the planet for data scientists. We were just looking um we're working on a on a really cool um, project right now with Splunk, and uh, we were just looking at Kaggle yesterday because uh, some of those projects uh, are just unbelievable. I right. mean, it's like it's the one that um, is at the top of the list right now is like the TSA is trying to figure out like how do we how do we um, you know do a better job essentially. Yeah, so I think there's some horizontal opportunities like that where you can great create great communities or great tools or great platforms to help people who are working in the with this technology of AI. But I think for the most part, AI is not a product. And even the the platforms to help you build your own AI solutions, you know, the the TensorFlows, the 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 SageMakers, um, 
you know, I think a lot of those are going to frankly be free. I think they're going to come from open source or they're going to come from the big cloud platform providers because, you know, frankly, the cloud providers can afford to give it away for free because they can monetize the compute. <laughs> you know, if you sit there and big build AI, but build a big AI solution with TensorFlow from Google, then Google's going to make a lot more money, you know, selling you the GCP compute cycles to run that solution. They don't need to charge you for the library, for the yeah. framework. So, um, so I think that there's, there's a lot of, of externalities that are making those platforms kind of commodity and, um, and not a lot of unique IP to be had there. And, and I think that's actually a good thing, right? Like the internet, there is no one company that, that provides the internet. The internet is a global standard that, that, that with a few service oriented, um, companies and nonprofits like I can that enable it to exist for everyone. And I think AI will be similar and it's more, okay, given this powerful new technology, given this new set of capabilities, how can we go transform businesses? How can we build a great business? And so, yeah, I absolutely, Finite State, the the security company I was talking about, they're a security company yeah. that happens to use some AI and some data to deliver yeah. a solution. But AI for the sake of AI, like that's just a solution looking for, like, that's not a solution. That's a technology looking for a problem. Yeah. What are some other companies that you're really excited about that uh, that you all have invested in recently? Well, I uh, I'm very excited. Um, I, obviously, coming from my VMware roots, I'm I'm pretty excited about how we can transform that data center, how we can continue to make um, our production workloads run more efficiently. And um, of course, you know whether you're running in your own data center or whether you're operating in the cloud, the the sort of the 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 bread and butter of every CIO and every CFO is all right, I'm, I'm running this great application and it comes at a cost and I'm trying to deliver as, as much quality at, a, at as low a cost as I can. And one of the things that, that limits our ability to deliver the best quality, the best performance and most reliable application at the lowest possible cost is just the fragmentation of the new microservices architecture and the, the fragmentation of expertise. So DevOps might know a lot about cloud infrastructure and instance sizing. The app developer knows about the code they've written. But there's no one engineer anymore who has the kind of cross stack, you know, is, is broad enough and deep enough to really performance tune that application. So we have this CICD process. We're continuously developing. We're continuously integrating. We're continuously deploying. And, you know, what happens is my AWS bill just compounds and compounds and compounds yeah. because with every release, things get more and more expensive. And maybe once in a while, like, I, you know, I try to get my app developers to go make their code more efficient and profile things and 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 trim their code and beat it back a little bit there. And maybe once in a while I get my DevOps guys to try to examine if there's any like idle resources or if the bottlenecks are in a certain place where I should make the instance size different. But, but I don't really have the deep insight into the full system to tune all the infrastructure parameters of which there's, you know, thousands, by the way, right? It's not just instance size and type. It's, you know, it's how am I indexing my database? It's which Java garbage collector am I using? It's, you know, what's the thread pool size on the microservices service? So that kind of decision gets pretty lost. Everybody kind of starts, every one of those things is tunable, but people just accept the defaults and ship. And so it turns out that there's immense gains to be had um, if someone, and by someone, I mean an AI, a neural network could actually go examine all the possible configurations and search to find the optimal ones, the sweet spots in the curve where you deliver maximum performance for minimum cost. So this is a company called Apsani. I sit on their board and they literally can go into 
well-known, mature applications used by millions of people and find out that they can reduce the clouds bill by 50% or more. Wow. And by the way, not only at no reduction in performance, because sometimes we spend a lot for infrastructure because we want headroom for reliability or we want to deliver the best possible performance and, and it's worth the price, but they can actually improve performance while cutting the cost that much. Wow. So, um, and that's because performance tuning is now too hard a problem for human beings. So let's let's get out of the way and let and unleash AI on that problem. So Apsani is a company I'm extremely excited about. We, I think um, we're starting to, to poke our nose into healthcare. I think healthcare is a tremendous opportunity for AI, but, you know, it's also a market that is, um, you know, we have to think about not just what problems is the technology ready to solve, but also which markets are ready to adopt the technology. And I think healthcare is one that we're approaching with some caution. We have met so many really fabulous startups that have working technology and can't find a buyer for it. Yeah. And it's not just a question of, oh, I got to get my, you know, regulatory approvals. I've got to, you know, it's, it's actually, it's, it's really a question of, um, of just, you know, little C conservatism yeah. on behalf of, of buyers who are hesitant to adopt uh, risk and um, or for whom the risk reward calculation is different than it would be for an enterprise. And so we've um, we've made our first investment in healthcare with a company called Maya, M-Y-I-A. And what they do is they um, they enable remote monitoring of patients who've had heart problems. Wow. And um, which is something that is already done, but is done without AI. And by just sort of sliding into that existing workflow, but kind of reprioritizing and making recommendations by tracking all these statistics about the patient, they can identify trends like weight loss um, or activity levels that indicate the likelihood of a potential relapse, but days or weeks ahead of what a human being could see on their own. And by being proactive about bringing those patients back for more care, for checkups, um, we can actually save lives. We can actually have better patient outcomes. So that's a company I'm super excited about. You know, I think that when when we think about where AI can make an impact, you know, healthcare is got to be pretty close to the top of that list. So it's uh, so that's an exciting one for us just to start to to learn. Yeah, we we recently um, just recorded an episode with uh, with Uli, and um, he's actually in the studio right before you. And you know the um, he worked at a at a hospital, Kaiser Permanente, um, where he was looking at all of their different hospitals and using um, data and AI to predict how, like, who is going to be um, at risk for a heart attack. And they were predicting, like, within seven days, um, you know, and this study's not finalized yet, uh, when people were going to have a heart attack based off of a bunch of different factors. The thing that's you know, it's obviously like remarkable stuff, but it's also what I think is so exciting about this is the idea that there's all sorts of like intended consequences that we can go measure, but there's also just massive amounts of data that that healthcare has that is sitting there that like no one has analyzed yet um, or is not yet sitting there that needs to be sitting there um, that no one has analyzed yet. And so many things are going to be found from that. And you just look at how many like technological advancements or uh, or health advancements over the course of history have been on accident. I mean, we're going to fall into so many problems, which is exciting. And when you have AI that is actively looking for those things, 
um, it's just really exciting. Yeah, I think there's there's tremendous potential there. And of course, a place we got to be really careful too. you know, yeah. when, when Apsani is, you know, making your data center more efficient, you know, the data it's looking at is like application performance logs. It's it's not, you know, people's bodies and lives and, and health. And on the one hand, you know, maybe that makes it sort of the, the value less emotionally stirring. But frankly, it's also a lot less fraught to be sharing that kind of data. We don't have data privacy issues so much when we're just trying to make your Amazon bill more efficient. But when we're looking at, you know, people's the most intimate personal information that a, that a human being has, um, you know, one thing these companies need to be really thoughtful about is the ethical and privacy implications of what they're doing. So I think that, you know, I am, I'm absolutely an optimist about the value technology can bring to bear, but I do think we've got to be sort of careful and not just, you know, charge in without a care. Oh, totally. And the way that you know, we and we talked a little bit with Uli about this, but about, you know, publicly available data about different sort of things. I mean, you look at so many of these companies, we talked to the CIO of Palantir, um, you know, like Palantir doesn't cross-reference other people's data. They don't even have, they don't even store data on their own network um, from them. And, uh, and this idea that like these companies that have massive amounts of data that are, that are, um, yeah, that technology is helping them, you know, analyze, you know, a lot of times there's still not going to be, there's no way to collaborate that right now. Um, and so what does that look like? What does, you know, AI that is, you know, we talked about, you know, horizontal versus vertical. Mm -hmm. What does that type of collaboration look like, especially in fields like healthcare where there could be massive um, benefits? Well, healthcare may be a little bit different just because there's such a big public interest and there may be like a, a, a regulatory body or something consortial yeah. that enables these entities to collaborate because they're not quite for-profit corporations. But, you know, when we're talking about enterprise software and that kind of problem, I actually am disposed. Maybe I have a hammer. I invest in startups, so every problem is a nail. But, <laughs> but I am disposed to see buying from the same vendor as actually an ideal way to collaborate and share data in an anonymized way. Um, and let me give another example. So um, one of the companies we've invested in is called Tractable, and they use computer vision to identify, to look at photos of damage to a car that's been in a car accident. And this, they're, they're bought by auto insurance companies when claims are filed. Yeah. And so as a, as a customer of a, a, you know, a top 10 auto insurance company that's using Tractable, like I've got an app from that auto company. And when I'm in a, uh, in a car accident and I want to file a claim, I take photos of my car. And rather than sending out a human claims adjuster to look at my car, those photos get analyzed by Tractable and result in, you know, a repair, replace, an estimate, where should I go to fix my car? All the things a human claims adjuster would do. And so that problem was very, very difficult. I mean, it's extraordinarily difficult to look at an image of a car and to have it labeled with the knowledge of what the problem actually was and what the repair costs ended up being and to predict based on future photos what that will be. And Tractable had the benefit of bootstrapping with a pretty large data set that they acquired through a partnership. But even that one couldn't get to the accuracy levels needed for production. And what has enabled them to do that is by serving a dozen or more of the largest auto insurance companies yep. in the world and being in production and having that data set and using humans to label the data as it comes in and then gradually building their corpus. And so no one auto insurance company was big enough to have a data set that could solve this problem. Many of them had tried, had built internal solutions and hit a wall. But when Tractable had a dozen of these customers and was pulling data, pooling data from all of them, they were able to get the accuracy level there. And all of them 
benefit, right? Like, like no auto insurance company is like the competitive advantage is not that they, you know, how, how much they do or don't spend on, on, uh, on, on human claims adjusters. So, so pooling this data benefits everybody, but, and, and tractable de-anonymizes it. You know, they're never saying, oh, here's what your competitor would have covered on that policy. They're just pooling the data about what does it cost to repair damage given this image of damage and which is totally anonymous across and just trains the model to be smarter. And then they can use that smarter model on behalf of everyone. So it's a way without having to sign up to sort of some kind of formal consortium and negotiate a, a dance among elephants um, to pool data and build a solution that can solve for an entire industry. And that's why I love the vertical applications of AI, because that's how you start to build critical mass of data that is about a particular domain, a particular context. I'm sure that a ton of our IT leaders that are listening are thinking of those buyer build questions, um, or I guess just, you know, it's not necessarily buy, but um, those vendor questions of like, should we build this? Or how much money did I sink into? I'm sure all of those, how many, how much money did we sink into trying to develop um, an AI just to find out we didn't have enough data set or a big enough data set? What would you recommend to those like, you know, CIOs, CTOs, CISOs that that listen, um, that are looking at those type of problems and saying, "Do I have enough data right now to act to accurately, um, you know, make a decision?" And and if I, you know, if I don't know the answer to this, should I be talking to you know ten vendors to try to figure out if I do have enough data? Like, how could you figure this out um, um, without sinking a ton of money into it? Well, look, I think that all, you know, I think true to my word that AI is going to pervade everything. I think that all CIOs and all enterprises should be thinking that AI is part of their IT mandate yeah. and that and that they need to adopt it and that the, the answer to build or buy is both. You will build some things that involve AI, just like with IT in general, like some applications you're going to build in-house and yeah. some you're going to buy. And so I actually think that they can reuse or recycle a lot of their existing know-how about when to build and when to buy. Is this a core competitive advantage? Are you going to be better at it? Is there a large market for it that's going to incentivize some vendor to put a lot more resources into building this than you want to? Um, you know, can can you build something that keeps up with the market or will you fall behind if a vendor is going to be able to deliver a solution to your competitors that is 10 times better? And, you know, and, and, and where do you want to differentiate and where do you want to just let the market lift up, be a rising tide for everyone. And so I think all that, all those rationales that you would already use to decide whether or not to build, you know, an internal payroll application, right? Like 30 years ago, everybody built their own payroll solution. Now nobody does. Um, you know, you would use that same kind of calculus to, um, to make decisions about AI as well. The only difference is this question of, can I do as well as the market? Is this question about data? Is my data good enough? And I would assert that you should be investing in a strong team of data scientists regardless. Like that's an investment you should make and you're going to be able to apply them to a lot of problems and it should be a mix of research and development. And so your smart data scientists should spend some time to evaluate problems and evaluate your data and um, and say, yeah, we've got enough to build. I can do some experiments that demonstrate what predictive power we have here. This is good. This is not. But then, you know, hopefully that's the 20% of their time and the 80% of their time. It's like, yeah, we've got the right amount of data. You know, we've got a unique problem that is only, you know, that is specific to our business. This is going to be a competitive advantage. And then they also spend time building those things. So I think you've got to have some in-house talent no matter what. 
you know, I do think that there's um, there are increasingly solutions and tools that can help you with that. Another company I'm working with is called Prometheum Data. They're actually pre-launched still, but this is one of the problems they're trying to crack is to help enterprises understand what data sets they possess and what problems they can solve, what questions they can answer with what accuracy with with those data sets. So, so I think increasingly there will be tools you can buy that actually help your in-house data scientists arrive at those answers to those questions sooner. Um, last but not least, let me throw in a plug for Kaggle. Like if all else fails, like you've got an interesting data set, make a, you know, scrub it and make it a Kaggle competition and see what the, you know, what the free labor market of, of data scientists tells you can be done with it. So I think there's, I think there's a lot of ways to that's, go. I mean, that's a great, that's, that's a great piece of advice, right? <laughs> it's like a super specific practical. But I think my core answer is you've got to build up an internal competency in AI. You've, whether you end up building or buying, you need a core team to help you do both. Do you think that, or have you seen this um, in your conversations with um, with CIOs, technology leaders, that they'll go to a startup team, you know, startups, as we know, are very needy in terms of capital and often, you know, trying to build a product. But if you go to them with saying, hey, this is our problem, this is the problem that we have. Uh, I know your product kind of does like sort of this, but not completely this. Could you customize this a lot more to me and we'll be able to pay for that. Have you seen folks be able to kind of like get a little bit more of that personalization because it's so important to get an enterprise customer as a as an early stage startup? I mean, yes and no. Small startups don't have an army of professional services people. So and, and you know, there's not SIs that are already building on their platform. So it's not necessarily as easy to get sort of custom features that are really specific to your business, you know, to, to put your logo on or your kind of unique flavor of, of whatever. But on the other hand, if, if the startup hasn't built those features yet, but, but they're trying to figure out, but those are the features that would complete their product that would solve not just your problem, but the same, everybody in your industry has that problem. And you're simply the, and you're really, you know, not so much trying to get the startup to do a one-off for you, but you're really truly a design partner to them in, in fleshing out what their product needs to be to solve the problem your industry has. In that case, you know, absolutely, um, you know, those those design partnerships can be a big win win. It does involve I think the buyer, the, the enterprise has to be an innovator and willing to to take some risks and live on the cutting edge together with that startup. But they add a lot of value to the startup, which they get back in terms of, you know, obviously favorable pricing, obviously favorable service. I mean, nobody answers your Slack messages at 2 a.m. like a startup. Yeah. And, you know, when I talk to enterprises who are working with startups, I usually hear glowing things about yeah. how responsive the startup is because you're life and death to them. And so when you have that kind of partnership, I think it can be really beneficial in both directions. Yeah. I mean, that's that's um, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And it just seems to me like a lot of the times, like corporate procurement, is so difficult. The whole process is just so laborious. And then you have like supplier diversity and you have all these other things that go into this like monstrosity that is buying from a big company. Um, and I think that a lot of times, you know, startups are are now this new age of startups is taught so much about customer centricity. It's about, you know, listen to the customer, do customer development, these sort of things. I think if you have someone who is that type of startup who like is dialed in, who's doing customer development the right way, they haven't re- yet reached their, you know, uh, you know, their 10, 10 customers to to be a viable enough data set to say like, hey, we think that these are the things. 
I think really just informing them of your problems and saying like, hey, I know you all are doing this, but like this is something that is super important. And if you had this, we would buy. Um, and just being transparent with that, like we're not forcing you to, to make this, but if that's when you have that feature, we'll buy. I think that that transparency and honesty in the in the process can allow some really some some magic to happen because like like couldn't we agree more. Said, yeah, I couldn't I mean, agree more. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that innovation happens at the intersection of an innovative buyer and an innovative seller. Right. Yeah. Where they're both where the concrete is still wet on both sides. They're both willing to learn and share with each other. And I think that's when we, you know, get that ineffable product market fit. It's not like somebody goes, some founder goes off in an ivory tower and, you know, Athena springs from the, the head of Zeus, you know, fully formed, right? It's, 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 it's only by sort of, okay, I have this idea. I've built my prototype. Now I got to deploy it in a real environment and, you know, and the slings and arrows of feedback of what does and does not work and where I'm incomplete and where I got to go build more. And if that sounds laborious for the enterprise, but they they also get what exactly what they're looking for and they get to be the early adopter. They get to move faster than everybody else in their industry and they get to set the standard. So I think it it can be really beneficial when both sides are in a position to work with each other. And I think it's you know kind of a shame. I feel like a lot of the received wisdom in this kind of lean startup SaaS era is that you know, startups should try to go mid-market first and serve SMBs and, you know, have self-service and and make it very simple. And they can worry about going higher and later. I think pre- precisely because of those very laborious, yeah. you know, procurement cycles, long sales cycles. And if you think about- a, You also a, don't get paid on time. Yeah. Like that's the, 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 yeah. the difference in mid-market is that like the they, person who is writing the checks, like has an email address that you can email. In enterprise, it's like 55 people and you have no idea who it is. Like totally. The, or I'm just billing your credit card every month. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Citibank's going to pay me. Um, I think though that that it's a, it's a lost opportunity if a startup goes that direction because you don't get the kind of feedback, you don't get the kind of intimacy, you don't get the kind of sort of partnership true partnership in, in developing the product. And um, and and you you can't get the the mammoth data sets as, as quickly too. And I think that enterprises who do this really well, where I've seen this work really well, one is when the startup has just built something that's so differentiated and so mission critical that there is a senior enough champion within the enterprise that they just lean down and slash through all the red tape. And I have seen that happen. There are products that are so unique and valuable that that the enterprise finds a way to to kind of eliminate a lot of the friction. Totally agree. The other way I think can work is when and but but that that raises the bar so high for the enterprise for the buyer and the seller to find each other for that magic to happen. I have also seen enterprises that are really good at buying from startups that have systematically made it, they have decided we're going to innovate, we're going to be early adopters, we're going to be design partners, it's going to put us a generation ahead of everybody else in our industry. And so they have systematically a different procurement process yeah. when they're dealing with startups. Fewer hoops, less red tape. Okay, I don't need to make you do a 600-page security audit, which is asking questions that are totally irrelevant to you. Um, and um, and they also have not just the the front end of the the, the procurement side, more streamlined, not just a recognition that like, you know, hey, I can pay the first year in advance because it's just not that big a check to me. Yep. Um, but also a sense of like um, graduated deployment. So, OK, I know I'm going to I know I'm going to start my pilot in, you know, with with, you know, with this one warehouse and then I'm going to spread to, you know, the six warehouses that are in the same geographic region. And then if that works well, then I'm going to. So so they have a sense of incrementalism, right? This sort of lean startup con- 
concept of of continuous iteration and improvement, they bake into the deployment process as well. And that, I think, makes the solution more absorbable. And so by the time you're talking about an enterprise-wide license agreement that does start to be big dollars and where really you should bring the full weight of your procurement process to bear, you're already working really well with the startup. They've gotten a lot of the benefit of partnering with you and they're more ready to do that. So if I think that, I think that, um, you know, enterprises who decide they're going to be innovators and that they're going to be working with startups, it's, it's a heavy lift, right? It's not just, you know, you know, agreeing to take some sales calls. Um, but it positions you so successfully to be a generation ahead of your competitors that I think the, the, the companies that do it are going to reap the benefits. What are some best practices that you've seen where corporate innovators find these type of companies other short of short of going to uh to zeta and and, and hanging out at one year uh one year <laughs> demo days um or what is it demo day or pitch company what is, what's the uh, portfolio day portfolio day it's, sure there we go call it whatever you want yeah no, I, like, I like portfolio day i mean I, corporate dev day mm-hmm. i mean uh, that's like yeah but we're not really interested in meeting your corp dev person oh that's true yeah we yeah, really yeah. want to meet um someone in the business so this would be my answer someone charged with innovation we find is almost never a buyer because a person with an innovation charter often doesn't have a budget and they often don't actually have a problem to solve. So hold on. I, I kind of, I want to push back on this a little bit because I think that like every CIO is charged with innovation. So not every. So that's different. So who I want to meet is a person who is in, who has problems to solve, a mandate and a budget to solve those problems. Because again, if I'm just selling like technology for technology's sake, then I can meet someone who's chartered with buying technology for, yeah. for the sake of experimenting with it. But you know what? Those are going to be small deals and they may or may not go anywhere and they may or may not be motivated. I see what you're where, saying. Where a startup meets with success is when they meet a buyer who's who's in terrible pain. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> like who's got big problems to solve. You know, Amazon is crushing their business. The, you know, there's a there's there's a regulatory threat whatever. There's there's you know, nothing focuses the mind like the sight of the gallows. So maybe it's a terrible problem or maybe it's a, an amazing opportunity, but they've got a race to take advantage of it, right? But, that, but something that is a real business need. It has to start not from a desire to innovate for its own sake, but from a real business need. Um and that is what causes the alignment that makes you willing to streamline your procurement process or champion spending money with a startup in advance and willing to take a risk because ultimately what powers innovation is risk taking. Yeah. Because if the answer were obvious, it by definition would not be innovative. And so what really motivates us to take a risk? It's, it's, if, you know, it's, it's, if it's, if it's even more risky to do nothing. Yeah. I mean, right. And, and to your point, I mean, with the Amazon example from earlier, it's like, Hey, if someone's saying that they can, you know, cut your Amazon bill in half, which is a a, a famous ad campaign that's going right now, um, and you're saying like, if you know, I mean, in in theory, what you're saying is, or I guess in practice, um, that you know, if you're a technology leader and you have a set of business problems that are, you know, your top ten business problems, and that you are with intent, going to events, going to demo days, going to, you know, whatever it is. And maybe it's you, maybe it's, you know, maybe you do one of these or maybe you do it in house. Maybe you have something where you're like, hey, we're going to have a hackathon about how do we, how do we, you know, cut our AWS bill in half or something like that. Like, 
something like that where it's like you're positioning the problem first or you're looking with intent for that problem absolutely it's it's got to be existential here's what i find cios are incredibly busy yeah they're doing everything they're interwoven to every part of the business and if a startup is not solving one of the top 10 maybe even top five problems that a cio has they're just not going to get the time of day yeah totally right that's going to be the 12 month sales cycle and you know limbo and by the way, venture capital is part of the problem here, too. Like for some products, like maybe it's natural for the sales cycle to be 12 months long. But you know what? Venture funding cycles are 12 to 18 months yeah. long. So if it takes you like if you run through all the money you raise for me and have to raise again before you've been able to land any customers, you know, you're doomed. So so startups need to find a way to accelerate those buying cycles or they they can't survive to the next refill station. Oh, totally. I mean, I, I think this is something that um, I've talked about with a bunch of the startups um, that I that I've worked with in the past and folks that, you know, we're friends with is um, when you go back to your your VC and you go. I'm telling you the sales cycle is X amount of time, let's just say nine months. The problem is I haven't hit one budget cycle for the people I'm selling to. So if they found out about my product in November, they've already budgeted their entire year, right? right? Exactly. So it's like, I'm not, you know, I'm already, it doesn't matter if my, that's right. that's not indicative of the sales cycle at exactly. all. It's, it's indicative of, of a buying cycle of a corporation. That's right. Nine months starting six months from now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. It's exactly right. So it's a 15 month cycle. Yeah. But, I, but I think it's a critical insight to know when you are the leader in the enterprise to know that this is what the startup is dealing with. Yeah. And this is the, you know, buying cycle that's realistic for us. Yeah. Ben, and if you have the flexibility to work with the startup on their cycle, all of a sudden you have a superpower compared totally. to all of your competitors. And, and and it just removes friction and accelerates speed to innovation. And, totally. I, and the final piece about the startup stuff is just that, like, I think the thing that's so cool is sometimes it, it you know, the, it, it just sounds like the needy startup or the, you know, sort of thing, which is tr very true. It's, it's extremely true. They are a needy startup. But the people that we're talking about here are like brilliant data scientists. They're, you know, brilliant founders that have done lots of stuff or they're people that have never started a company before, but um, have this you know, unique thing. And a bunch of these are, are going to fail for a lot of different reasons. Um, more often than not, and my, my contention would be that more often than not, it is not the product that fails the company, that what kills the company is that they can't figure out how to get people to pay for that in the, in the way, like you said, you know, you make two mistakes and you go mid-market and send enterprise or vice versa. And it's like, uh, you know, you raise from a few of the wrong investors. You're not going to make it. You're out of time. You're out of runway. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, it's really, it's really hard. It's really hard to do a startup. I mean, you have to make 10 impossible things be true before breakfast, right? You have to convince people to put in millions of dollars on faith. You have to actually um, solve a problem other people can't solve, hopefully because you have some unique technical insight or unique timing or unique product insight. And then you have to actually choose a go-to-market that fundamentally works with that product and for those customers. And you have to get the details right. Like you've got this, you know, I, I talked before about working at VMware, you know, VMware in 1999 had an absolutely amazing, unique technology that was incredibly valuable, but nobody was, it was, too science fictional on day yeah. one. Nobody was going to deploy that in their data center. So even though the valuable market for that was server consolidation, was, you know, software defined data center, they couldn't reach that market on day one. So they had to go build tools for sysadmins to do testing and, and development and staging. And, you know, it took us five years of building those tools before it was like, oh, wait, you know, I've been using VMware in my 
test farm for four years. I'm ready to use it in my data center now. And, you know, and then we can take off like a rocket. But but, you know, we had to wander in the wilderness for a while, not because we didn't know the right market, but because it wasn't we had to bring that market into existence by doing something else first. That kind of switch back. You know, sometimes there is no straight path to the top of the mountain. Sometimes you've got to, you know, take a switch back, going back and forth to, to get up there. But it's so easy to run out of money, run out of time, run out of faith. Um, you know, any number of things can can kill a startup. But the things that save startups, the things that make startups go, if you think about the alchemy, the magic that has to happen, you know, that handful, that one to three first design partners, those enterprise customers who see what you're doing, who see that it's valuable because it's so valuable, because it's one of their top priorities, they work with you on solving it. Um, those are defining moments for startups that that really bring them into focus. So there's there's nothing more valuable to a startup than one than their first ten customers. Yeah. And if you and if you go back ten years and you say, hey, I could cut your AWS bill in half, they'd be like, what what the hell are you talking about? Right. right? <laughs> and so that's that's it's some of that timing piece is like something doesn't become an issue until it's an issue. And then it's a huge issue. And then it's a top 10 pain point. And then it's a top five. And then it's number one. Right. Yep. So I think that there's there's that sort of like, you know, there a lot of times they're looking at something, you know, they're bringing something that they're like, no, this is going to be a huge deal in five years. And you're like, OK, well, it's not a huge deal right now. So come back in five years, <laughs> um, which is which is, I think, the fun part. Um, Let's get into some lightning round questions. We didn't do this last time. <laughs> no. No, we didn't get to it. Fast and easy questions, just like the lightning platform from Salesforce. Fast and easy. I didn't share these with you ahead of time. You have no idea what's coming. Are you ready? Uh, I was born ready. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? Uh, Twitter makes me angry and happy in probably equal measure. I'll, I'll stick with that. That's my first thing. answer. What about your favorite time-saving tool? That's got to be my CRM, actually, which is a, a, a CRM made just for VCs called Affinity. Oh, interesting. That's a good one. Actually, I think they're branching beyond VC now, but it's um, it actually it leverages AI and it pulls data across customers. So I have to do almost no data entry because it already it infers all this data about companies for me. You it's had really me. Great. You had me at almost no data entry. Um, <laughs> do you have a uh, favorite? recent book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? Um, well, I'm addicted to the 538 podcast because it mm. sort of makes sense of the national political scene right now, which is something I need somebody to do. Um, favorite book. I recently read um, Just Mercy, which is about criminal justice reform uh, by a guy named Brian Stevenson with, um, uh, I think, the EJI Institute in Georgia. And it's an incredible book. It's really moving. Favorite vacation spot? Well, I've just come back from Big Sur, so I'll go with that. It's incredibly peaceful. It's gorgeous. You can hike, you can do yoga, you can just peace out. What do you do for fun? Oh, I think spending time with my kids is uh, is every second I can get. Yeah. Especially board games and video games. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're kind of a nerdy family. This is a loaded question, but what is your favorite commercial use of AI or chatbots that you've seen recently? Oh my God, that's like asking which of my children is my favorite. Um, Go non-portfolio oh company. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. That, no, so no, that we're I have to, I have to. Respecting the innocent. All right. Well, I, I guess I'll, I'll stick with my social impact theme and say that if the social media companies can really get AI to work for content moderation and for removing bad actors and bad content from the platform, you know, it will save civilization. So I'm, um, I'll vote with that. And they're doing quite a lot of it. It's not enough yet, but... Even the early returns are promising. What is your best advice for a first time 
technology leader. So a technical person who's first time moving into a leadership role or a business CEO who's running a startup and has to manage a technical team for the first time? I love the questions. Um, I will go with someone who is... I'm sorry, it's not the spirit of the lightning round. <laughs> no, no, it's they're all good. Um, I will say someone who is moving into the C-suite for the first time, whether it's a CIO, CTO, CISO, any, any type of thing like that. You have to learn to manage up and manage down differently. And you have to learn how to communicate differently. And you have to learn that, you know, both the substance of what you're doing and how you communicate what you're doing, like probably you've been learning that all along as you rise, but it's a whole new level of scope of both doing the work and communicating it well. And I recommend having a mentor in your back pocket like someone actually at a different company in a similar role that you can go to, like, it's just a superpower. Like you can wait to learn all these lessons through, you know, trial and error through the school of hard knocks. But if you can, you know, have a buddy who's a couple years ahead of you and has walked in those shoes and can save you some of those, uh, some of those mistakes, um, it's a superpower. That's it. That's all we got. All right. That's it for the lightning round. And that's it for today. Uh, anything to uh, anything to plug? Anything you got going on that's uh, that's fun? Well, one thing that Zeta loves to do is bring CIOs and bring technology and business leaders to San Francisco and share with you a bunch of our portfolio companies. So if you are an innovative leader in an enterprise and want to work with startups in the way we've been talking about, we would love to host you in San Francisco and show you a bunch of our companies. And you can swing by the podcast too. We'll, we'll bring you to in studio. It'll be a whole thing. The proverbial Palo Alto garage. Yeah, exactly. Jocelyn, this is great. This has been really awesome. I'm glad we got two parts with you. So much to unpack and we'll, we we have to bring you back soon because uh, this is just great stuff. Well, maybe I'll come back with one of my companies. Yeah, about that? that's great. Oh, no, we should do, uh, we want to do a, a digital uh, demo day, an IT Visionaries demo day. That would be like the most fun, uh, fun thing. Have them all do some pitches and stuff and record it as a podcast. Amazing. I would love to. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you again to our friends at Salesforce. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. Salesforce just introduced the Lightning Platform Mobile, the low-code mobile app development platform that empowers anyone to easily build, publish, and manage AI-powered mobile apps for employees and for customers. Find out more at salesforce.com slash build mobile apps.